Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Welcome everyone uh, to City Beautiful Church. My name is Ryan. I'm pastor here and today is uh, the last day of the church calendar. Um, You know, we can't we have, to, we have to rebel in everything we do as Christians, and one of those things is we say, December 31st, psh, how about November 21st? Um, so today is what we call Christ the King Sunday, and if you're familiar, maybe you grew up in a tradition that has the church calendar uh, as kind of one of the, the central acts of the church, because what it is essentially is us uh, telling the story of Jesus every year. So we begin with Advent, which is next Sunday, and the word Advent means coming, where we're anticipating the coming of Christ. And so we kind of look back at the first coming of Jesus in order to anticipate his second coming. So we go through the Advent season, and then we enter into Christmas, which is Emmanuel, God with us, and then Epiphany. Uh, and then we go into the Lent season, uh, which leads us up to Holy Week, which is Palm Sunday, uh, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and then Easter Sunday, and then Easter through Pentecost, and then we enter into ordinary time after Pentecost, and then we find ourselves today at Christ the King Sunday. And I love this Sunday because, um, you know, it's almost like when we're telling the story of Jesus uh, beginning in Advent, we're looking at what we will next week, hope and anticipation, and kind of you know, we've looked at some of the prophets in the past as kind of these signposts in the mist. Uh, the people knew some of what God was going to do, but they didn't exactly know what it was going to look like. And so we kind of follow that story uh, kind of through the calendar year as Israel and by extension us are discovering what God is really like when he's revealed in the person of Jesus. And so Christ the King is kind of the culmination of that where we're recognizing that now he is Lord over all, through all, and in all, that he is the Christ of the cosmos. And so that's what we're going to be really focusing in on today. We're going to be looking at a passage uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, um, and then we're going to kind of finish out uh, by reciting together the Nicene Creed, which, again, many of you will be familiar with. So I'm going to pray, and we'll just jump into what the Lord has for us today. So Heavenly Father, And we testify to the truth that you are here, that you are with us, that you are for us, that you're not against us. Lord, I pray as we finish out this year, uh, where we've been focusing so intently on all of our allegiance uh, to King Jesus, um, that we wouldn't leave this church year thinking that we've already Um, understood everything there is to understand or that we've already sorted it all out, but that it continues uh, this journey of discovery uh, with you. Uh, That more and more day by day we're we're, we're figuring out what it means uh, for our whole person to be gathered up behind you as our king and to follow you wherever you might lead us. Lord, we abdicate all of our plans and our agendas our programs, to see where it is that you might take us, to be willing to be surprised and delighted. Because ultimately you are God and we are not. And that's a good thing. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Um, so I had, a, I had some ideas of what I wanted to do in this sermon, and sometimes they come very easily to me, and I can sit down and kind of uh, just allow it to, to flow. 
um, when, when I'm writing it out. And sometimes it's really hard to kind of figure out the angle or the approach or what stories should we be focusing on or, or whatever it might be. Um, and this week was definitely one of those weeks. I remember uh, one of my favorite composers, Philip Glass, he talks about uh, composing music and he says, the best way I can think of it, it's like divining for water. Does anybody remember like that kind of old wives tale if you have like a forked stick? You hold it a certain way and it'll reveal to you uh, where there's water underground. It's not true, it's a pseudoscience. Um, but it's still like this really neat image. And he said, for him, com- composing is a, is a lot like that. He knows the music is there. It's somewhere he's just kind of trying to discover what's already there, but it's hidden. And for me, a lot of times, preaching, that's what it feels like. I know that it's there, and I know some of the component pieces, um, but I'm waiting for something to kind of reveal itself to me so that I can allow it to flow uh, through the typewriter. And so today, uh, this, this sermon especially, um, there was a turning point for me when I came across this poem uh, by William Butler, Butler Yeats from 1920. It's called The Second Coming. And so I actually want to begin here because I think it really sets the tone for where I want us to go. Um, and so for some of you, uh, you know, it'll be on the screen. You can read along. For others, you might want to close your eyes and just listen to the poem. There's something that poetry does to us that mere description doesn't, right? Like poems kind of ignite our imagination. They speak something to our hearts that awakens us to possibilities. And that's why I wanted to begin with this poem. So this is The Second Coming by W.B. Yeats. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming. Hardly are the words out when the vast image out of Spiritus Mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun is moving its slow thighs, while all about it reel shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, but now I know that twenty centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. Yeats wrote this poem after the, the atrocity of, of World War I, which almost ironically they called it the Great War or the War to End All Wars, uh, not really knowing that within another 20 years we would be in a second world war. And there was the sheer devastation of Europe, and he's looking at this saying, surely this is the culmination of our arrogance and where we have been heading as a society, as a civilization. And so you see in that beginning uh, portion, the the first stanza of this poem, he's talking about the, the falcon increasingly kind of circling out from the falconer, no longer having that central narrative to bind together what it means to be a human being what it means to be a civilization. I think it's especially powerful at the end of that stanza, he says, the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passion and intensity. What happens to us when we lose our center, the central story of the human family, the central story of our society, as we're increasingly spiraling 
out of control, finding ourselves more and more on the outskirts, that we begin to lack the best of us, begin to lack conviction. While at worst, we're so guided by passion and intensity that we actually add fuel to the fire. And in the middle of the poem, Yeats feels this desire to see the second coming. We need a new narrative. We need to become reacquainted with the thing that has grounded us for so long. But when he looks to the horizon, he does not see the coming of Christ. But he sees the Sphinx, the symbol of the new age, the symbol of the pagan idolatry, marching toward Bethlehem to be born again. And I wonder if this poem does not so beautifully articulate even almost a hundred years ago, well actually more than a hundred years ago now, um, where we find ourselves today with kind of the death of uh, the, the ascendancy of the Enlightenment era um, that has collapsed around us and has in the, in the vacuum of not having a central story to guide us, so many other Competing narratives are seeking to find their place there to anchor us and to ground us, but indeed make the case worse. Because I believe that we're teetering on the chaotic edge of the Enlightenment era, robbed of a centering story that gathers up all existence and gives it all a meaning. Once upon a time, everybody believed in God, or at least gods. Maybe it was like bunny gods or dog-faced gods or moon people on Venus, I don't know, you know, whatever. Everybody believed. Everybody just assumed there, there, there is a spiritual realm, um, there is a god or there are gods. Sometimes they look like us, sometimes, you know, kind of the, the uh, in, in Israel, like this, this god Yahweh is, was kind of a new and revolutionary concept for God, that God isn't just like us but bigger, but God actually doesn't have shape or form. God transcends the material reality while encompassing it. But once upon a time, everybody believed. And then comes the Enlightenment era. This is about 500 years ago when some thinkers began to come along to say, how, how, how do we discover what truth is? And that became kind of, it's always been this central narrative within philosophy, but how do we know what truth is? And, and what happens over time is that we begin to move away from this assumption that there is some sort of creator at the center of existence, that everything comes from um, you know, a, a benevolent God or a malevolent God, whatever your story was, and it begins to center on human existence. We see this in Rene Descartes when he says, cogito ergo sum, I think Therefore, I am. That was his solution to say, well, I can doubt and question everything in my life. How do I know what is really true? And I, I take this on the word of these other people, and I've never truly been to that place. And so I kind of question even some of my own ex experiences or the things that I'm reading. But I'm thinking, so I must be real. And so if I start there and trying to discover what truth is, perhaps I would be able to rebuild an understanding of the world. It was a very well-meaning endeavor by Descartes to kind of give us some sort of a grounding to reality. But unfortunately what it did is it took most of humanity and moved us away from understanding that there is a God at the center of the story to putting ourselves at the center. We began to turn to materialist forms of knowledge. For something to be true, it has to be observable. It has to be measurable. And if it, if it cannot uh, be proven in these very specific categories, then it must not actually be true. And before long, we find ourselves where we are today, where the explanations for religion are, oh, religion served a purpose to help explain why the world is the way that it is, but we don't need that anymore. Now we have science. 
And unfortunately, what that has done, what we've discovered is that kind of as the enlightenment has gathered, that we have lost a sense of meaning to our lives, what it means to be a human being. And this kind of supposed you know, crowning victory of, of rationality and, and logic and rhetoric to be the new guiding forces of humanity have begun to fail us, and the world around us is burning because of it. Can anybody testify? All that we were, that we were supposed to be in a utopia. We are supposed to have solved all the problems. Like if we can kill God, if we can get rid of religion, if we can just be rational creatures that are guided by reason and logic, then maybe we can fix the world. Maybe we can make heaven on earth. But then we see just through the 20th century how that has all begun to fall apart. And indeed, I think kind of the, 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 this era of postmodernism that we're still sort of in, but we're still kind of maybe moving beyond whatever it might be, it's almost like this purging of this Enlightenment era thinking, this modernist thinking that says, well, there's just kind of a, a central way of creating a framework of, of reason and logic that helps frame the world so we know what to do. There's no ambiguity. We know how morality works. And I don't, you know, some people say postmodernism is atrocity. Some people say it's a great thing. I think it seems like it's necessary. It's like culturally the human family is just like we're, we're uh, purging like this bile. We're just getting it all out because it's showing that the emperor has no clothes that all the, the, the rhetoric of the Enlightenment era has nothing at the core of it. And I think problematically, you know, again, it's very easy for us as the church to say, oh, ho, ho, look at society out there. Maybe now they'll recognize they need us and they'll come back to the church. And there's a kind of, there's a level of, um, you know, audacious pride there that we can so often have. And even like through the summer, we were talking about this a lot with, with virtue in saying we tend to think, oh, the church is moral, and the world is immoral, and that's the way it works. But to recognize, well, it's actually far more complicated. Human beings are hyper-moral, whether they're in the church or not. And we have to get our own household in order before we can really begin to love the world with the love of God. And I think even especially within the Western church, we've responded to this me-centered philosophical outlook on, on what it means to be a human being with a me-centered gospel. So when Descartes said, I think, therefore I am, and put my own experience at the center of my interpretation of reality, the church actually said, okay, well, we'll play that game. We can do that. So we're going to put human beings at the center of the gospel narrative. The problem was that that renders most of the Christian tradition illegible to the average Christian because the church began to teach Christians the wrong questions to ask so they would be given the wrong answers. Now, how, who feels, I'm sorry, that, that was disappointing, wasn't it? <laughs> that was pretty, you know, that was all doom and gloom. There's good news, okay? Then that's where we're gonna go. I hope by the end of this we'll find some good news. Um, I do believe in the midst of the, the purging of postmodernism and the purging that the deconstruction era is bringing, and again, I do think a lot of it is actually necessary. That's why we said a couple weeks ago, I think we need to bless St. Thomas as the patron saint of our modern era because some of this conversation that's happening is really needed. But one of the things that I'm particularly excited to see is I think that there is a new awakening in the American church to coming back to what we mean when we say gospel and what we mean when we say Christian. Because these words have been bandied about for so long, for so many decades, with us having the illusion that we have this kind of central seat at the table. 
And all of a sudden now that society and culture is moving beyond us because we're not being sensitive enough to what's happening, there are people, there are leaders, there are voices within the American church that are genuinely paying attention and making that shift and coming back to that and saying, what are we actually called to believe? And I think it's a really exciting time to be a Christian in that sense now because we're not taking for granted all of the things that we did. You know, for your parents and for your parents' parents, it's like, well, you're Lutheran, I'm Lutheran, everybody's Lutheran. Like, we just, we're just Lutherans. That's how we do it. And we're usually just Lutherans for an hour on Sunday, right? Because nothing was ever challenging us otherwise. But now it's becoming vital that we understand what it means for us to be Christian and what it means for us to walk out the gospel. And some of these wonderful voices that I've been listening to, Scott McKnight would be one of them. He's a professor at Northern Seminary, um, and a wonderful writer uh, and preacher. And he, uh, he talks a lot about this in a book called The King Jesus Gospel, about us reclaiming what the gospel actually means and rebuilding from there. And part of what it does is it purges us of this me-centered gospel that so many of us have grown up with. Because sometimes I think it's, uh, it's actually harder for Christians to know Christ than it is for non-Christians. Because we're so convinced that we already know what we're talking about. So we're going to be looking today at 1 Corinthians 15. Because when we ask this question, what is the gospel? This is one of the clearest places that we see Paul uh, giving us that word, evangelion, gospel, that he's preaching the good news of Christ. And this is where we find it. So I'm going to kind of break it into two parts. We're going to look at 1 through 11, and then we're going to look at 20 to 28. This is 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel, evangelion, good news, I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. So what do we see here automatically? What we've been looking at this whole year when it talks about faith. Faith is not static. Faith is not one and done. I prayed this prayer when I was at uh, summer camp when I was 15, and then I got baptized every other year after that because some reason I didn't mean it the year before or whatever. It, that's not what it means. Like faith is alive and it's dynamic and it's your, it's your being, giving over of your whole self to the person of Christ as king. And that's what he's saying. You receive this gospel, you take the stand on it, you are saved by this gospel, but there's a condition to it if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. And that should make us really sit up. Because we think our Christianity is an ethnicity. In our family, we came from a, a society where what you believe, or what you claim to believe, is your ethnicity. You're either Protestant or you're Catholic. And the joke in Northern Ireland was always, someone walks up to you and says, well, are you uh, a Protestant or you're Catholic? You say, oh, I'm an atheist. Well, okay, but are you a Protestant atheist or you're a Catholic atheist? <laughs> Nothing to do with what you believe. Everything to do with your ethnicity. But I see this country going the same direction. I think America is going in the exact same direction. Because there's a lot of people that would claim to be Christian that have no idea what they're talking about. There's no true substance to it. I remember five years ago writing a, a very angry essay because I was very disillusioned with what was happening in this country. And I thought I invented the term exvangelical. Now it means something else. But I met people who still think that they believe, but there's no Jesus at the core of it. Like, we don't need Jesus anymore. We've just got all of our morality, and we can just beat people over the head with the Bible. Like, that's, to me, what exvangelicals are. 
But Paul is saying here, no, if you hold firmly to the word that I preached. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Okay? So this is what he's saying. This is him gospeling. This is, this is Paul doing the, doing the work. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So Paul's making the plea. He's saying, this, it's not like this is a rumor. It's not like this is some sort of myth. Like, you can go talk to these people. They're still around. And I even love that he, 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 when, we speak, when we speak of death as Christians, we speak of it as sleep because we know by faith that it's not the end. Then he appeared to James, and then all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Um, the word for abnormally born there is uh, kind of like a, like a preemie, uh, like, a, you know, like a baby that's born early. That's the kind of language he's using. He's like, so he's saying, like, I, I'm on the level with the rest of the apostles because I've seen the true and risen Christ, even though I was kind of half-formed when I met him. <laughs> if you know Paul's story that Jonathan talked us through a few weeks ago, you'll know he had this kind of radical encounter in Damascus. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. And that's a little bit of that Roman boasting and a little bit of that uh, Jewish humility together, you know? And we do, don't we do this in the church all the time? Be like, man, Patrick, that was a really great worship set. Oh, it wasn't me. That was all God. You're like, well, you, you strummed the guitar. You were there. You know what I mean? Like, you were present. I saw this, but yeah, it's this, this, this co-working with the Spirit of God, the grace of God. So whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. So for Paul, the gospel is a story, okay? The gospel is specifically the story of Christ's life, death, burial, resurrection, and then appearances, and that's what he's telling us here in 1 Corinthians 15. He lays it out very, very clearly for us. He says, this is the gospel that I was gospeling to you. And he kind of imp implies Christ's life, which we'll, we'll talk about in a moment. But he definitely hones in on the death, the burial, the resurrection, and then the appearance. And we see a couple times this phrase, in accordance with the scriptures. And throughout the New Testament, you see this time and again. Peter really loves this phrase as well, in accordance with the scriptures. And what the, the earliest followers of Jesus were saying when they say that is the whole story matters to this point. There was a very prominent pastor a couple years ago who said that Christians need to unhitch from the Old Testament. And they said, hold on, like, is that what you mean? Or do you, like, is that really what you, he said, yeah, that's what I mean. Because it's not useful anymore. You see, again, one of the consequences of Enlightenment thinking is that we have reduced the gospel to utilitarianism, which means it's only there to give me something that I need, which is to live a life that's a little less miserable than the week before. And if that's what you're looking for, then you read the Old Testament. Well, it's not helpful. It's not particularly useful. It's confusing and complicated and really cryptic in some places, and it doesn't really seem to have anything to do. Like, if, if you want a useful gospel, you can... Maybe John 3.16 will help you. Philippians 4.13 out of context. Jeremiah 29.11 is a really good one. Consider the plans I have for you, but then just stop there because the rest of that chapter sucks because God just goes, 
here's the plans I have for you. You're going to be in exile for 80 years, and maybe if you behave yourself, your kids get to come home. That's what that verse actually means. But again, we don't read it that way. Um, in accordance with the scriptures, it's these Jewish followers of Jesus saying, in accordance with the whole story up to this God, it's all, it's all been on this trajectory towards Christ as the full revelation of God. And this is what we see time and again in Hebrews. He says, you know, in the past, God has spoken to us in many times and in many ways through the prophets, through the law. But now he has spoken to us through Christ Jesus, who is the image of God and the exact representation of his character. And so they don't discount the Old Testament story. In fact, for them, it's, it's vital that we know the whole story. Because if we just jump in with the Jesus story, it's not going to make a lot of sense. But unfortunately, our response in the Christian household to the Enlightenment era thinking, cohito ergo sum, I think therefore I am, is that we begin to ask questions of a salvation culture and not a gospel culture. And I think in the previous generations, the question at the core of the gospel answer was, what must I do to be saved? Okay, that's what people used to grow up into. Because they still kind of believed that there was an afterlife. And all it means is there's kind of some place, like somewhere way, 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 way down there where there's you know, a red guy with horns and a trident and he's going to poke me in the ass for the eternity. And how do I get away from that? It's like salvation's like about fire insurance. So I go, what do I have to do to make sure that that's not what happens to me in the future? But I don't even think that's the gospel that's being answered anymore right? Like maybe some of you grew up with that, like that would, you could still find that in the South a little bit. But I think it's like, it's even devolved beyond that because we don't even believe in an afterlife anymore. I think now what the church has conditioned people to expect is the gospel questions are, what must I do to be a good person? Because at the most, what we can hope from our gospel is that it teaches us how to behave, how to be good little boys and girls, how to contribute to society, whatever it might be. Or even more recently, what do I have to know in order to survive the chaos of the modern world? That's all the gospel is. And it's continually devolved because we've lowered our sights of what the gospel is supposed to be. The gospel is the story. It's the saving story of Jesus. It's the culmination of Israel's story. God's Messiah on earth, Emmanuel. God with us who through his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection somehow saves us. And, and do you realize the Bible is not terribly interested in teaching you the mechanics of how that works. It just tells you that it does. Because again, in our enlightenment thinking where it's all about reason and logic, we go, well, how? How does it work? How's it supposed to be? Like, what, are the, what are the mechanics of it? Well, the Bible's not interested in telling you that. In the same way, the Bible's not particularly interested in telling you where evil comes from. It just says it's there, but it shows you how God is dealing with it. So there's a whole different trajectory to what is actually happening within the scriptures that because of our modern minds, we are incapable of reading the true gospel. And so Paul goes on in verses 20 to 28. He says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. 
Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Referring to scripture. It says now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it's clear this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. And so now Paul is showing us like this is the gospel message, the life, death, resurrection, the appearance of Christ. And this is how this gospel message is kind of playing out as it's it's kind of spreading out into the world. You know, Jesus used that image of like the mustard seed that begins to, to, to spread everywhere and it becomes the largest of the plants in the garden. And so what we recognize here is that the gospel is a declaration followed by an invitation that puts King Jesus back at the center of all existence. The good news of Jesus is not good advice. Well, what do I need to do to be a good boy, to be a good girl? It's not utilitarian. Well, what do I need to live a less miserable life than last week? Give me some advice. Give me some plans. Give me a program. None of that is gospel. The gospel is good news. It is a declaration. Things are different now because God is on the move, followed by an invitation. So what are you going to do about it? Like, what's your part to play? And we see this in Jesus himself. He says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which is to say the new reality of God is so close that you can reach out and you can touch it. He says repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Change the way you think. Change the way that you assume everything about yourself, about the world, about God himself. Begin to change those things. Turn around and come home. Come back. Like let God be at the center of your narrative and the narrative of all of creation. You know, when I was on my sabbatical, I was kind of trying to immerse myself more in Celtic Christianity to understand how that might speak to where we're at today. And when I was in Downpatrick in Northern Ireland, I went through the St. Patrick Center, which is kind of, it tells the story of St. Patrick in Ireland and all of this. And um, and his his amazing kind of story of being captured um, by Irish raiders, he probably lived in Wales, uh, taken over to Ireland, he was, uh, he was a slave, he was a shepherd, he escaped, he got back over to Britain, uh, but then God told him he needs to go back and to evangelize the Irish, uh, which he does, uh, and then he begins to set up monasteries all over the island, and there's this whole kind of, uh, you know, um, revival on the, on the island of Ireland, and then before long, Ireland begins to send out uh, missionaries, so last week I talked about you know, Cuthbert, but his predecessor, Aidan, was Irish. Uh, there was Column Keel who um, did some amazing work in Europe. But there was this really fascinating little moment um, kind of at the tail end of this exhibit on St. Patrick. And it was talking about his legacy and all of these, uh, these men and women that he began to send out from Ireland uh, to go and to plant other monasteries and begin to speak to the powers and principalities of the day. And it just said that they went out and began to re-evangelize Europe, okay? So we're talking like 1,400 years ago. And this phrase, it stuck with me for the next few days. I was just meditating on it, just re-evangelizing Europe. And I realized like, oh, wait, we've been here before. Like we've been in a place where 
Europe is post-Christian, we might say. Now, I don't know that we've been there with America. I don't know that we've ever been terribly Christian in the first place. But it's happened before where it seems like Christendom, which is kind of the, the fake structure of Christianity as power, collapses. There's a vacuum of a story. People are hungry for a story. And then God sends in people, usually the Irish, to come in. Oh, you're still with me? Great. Um, and to re-evangelize, to re-gospel, to begin to tell the story again. And I would even go so far as to say, to tell people the story that they already have, but they don't realize that they have it. Now, that's the interesting moment that we're at today, friends, is that when you and I go out to tell the story of God in our post-Christian society, we're telling people something that they kind of already know on some level, which to one degree makes it a lot harder because it's not a blank slate. You're bumping up against people going, oh, yes, I already know the gospel story. I already know this about Jesus. I already know that about being a Christian, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It, makes the, it requires a lot of nuance from us, but this is important to recognize. This isn't new. This isn't like an unprecedented moment in history where all of a sudden Christianity is collapsing around us. We've been here before and God has been faithful. And that's why we're given this promise that like, you know, hell will never prevail against the gates of heaven. Now do we believe that? Like yeah, we're in crisis. Yeah, the world is pretty crazy and we want someone to tell us what to do to moor us, to get through the chaos of the day. But it also calls us to come back to the gospel narrative and to say, is this story centering me? Is it anchoring me in the midst of the storm? So we have this declaration. Jesus is Lord. He is king over all, in all, and through all. We have this invitation. Are you going to repent and believe? Are you going to come back and allow that story to recenter you? And then we see what Paul highlights here some of these things the benefits of the gospel which is what we often confuse as being the gospel itself we see the forgiveness of sin being very important benefit of the gospel when jesus is king sins are forgiven and sin is a very unpopular word again postmodernism has has put us to question the nature of good and evil and to say oh well those are just human constructs there really is no good there really is no evil and then the Holocaust happens. And then people are murdered in the streets. And we struggle because we've been told, well, good and evil are just human constructs. So what is this? What's this thing that's happening? Or on a deeper level, what's this feeling that I'm feeling inside of me when I read the news and it's the deepest part of me goes, that's not okay. I heard an Orthodox speaker recently say, sin is misuse of creation. That's brilliant, because it works for me as an individual person, but it works for us as the human family. Sin is when we misuse creation, because everything in creation, nothing is truly a blank slate. Everything has intention. God has created things with a specific design in mind, and when we misuse those things contrary to God's intentions, that's when we sin. And so the forgiveness of sins is God calling us back to, to recognize how everything has been created in God's order and beauty and to come into alignment with that, whether it's ourselves, our mind, our body, our hearts, whether it's the human family, whether it's creation itself. I mean, how often do we sin against the earth? Because we misuse it. We think it's just there for us to gobble up for our own personal benefit. We see 
one of the benefits of the gospel is the conquering of sin and death. I love that Paul says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Like that's the last enemy. Like Christ is conquering sin, conquering death, and they no longer have their sting. And how many of us, we walk around perennially afraid of death. We're so afraid of death. We're so afraid of dying. As Hauerwas says, Americans try to get out of life alive if we can help it. Because we're so afraid to talk about it because it still has so much power over us. But Christ delivers us from the fear of death. You know, I do these little ask me anything things on Instagram every Friday. And y'all have a lot of questions about the afterlife. So I think we might need to address that soon. And I think I've asked, been asked so many questions about Christian universalism that y'all probably think that I'm a Christian universalist. <laughs> Which I don't mind. Those people are great. Um, but we believe, when we hold it open-handedly, that there's something after this. And that it's good, because God is good. And these questions, does God get what God wants while honoring our free will? These are important questions. But it's all speculation as of right now. It's, nothing's as clear as we would really like it to be. That, but the thing that is clear is that Christ has conquered death. And death no longer has a sting. What's another benefit of the gospel? Your personal salvation. Yeah, that's, that's a benefit of the gospel. That's real. And that, that means your eternal security, absolutely. But it also means you're saved now. And that's what Paul says. You are saved if you hold fast. What does that mean? You're being saved from the lies of the culture that surrounds us, that tells you that you're just an individual, that tells you that you're a consumer, that tells you that you don't matter. All of these narratives that exist within our society, you have been saved from those things as you've been welcomed into this new reality of King Jesus. I love that in Greek, the word for salvation is sozo, and it means rescue, like you're being pulled into a lifeboat, but it also means healing. And so the healing that you are receiving as, as all these little pieces of you that have been shattered apart by the world around you are being brought back together in King Jesus, that's what we call salvation. What else is a benefit of the gospel? You have been saved into the family of God. I like the way Peter writes it. He says, once we were no people, but now we're God's people. Once we didn't have a home, we were homeless, we were orphans. But now we've got a family. And do you realize that the people that you're in this room with, like your bond to them is more powerful than the bond that you have with your own bio biological family. Because biology will fade. But to be in Christ, to be the body of Christ together, these are your brothers and sisters, like that is eternal. This is what we mean by justification. For any of you that grew up in a Reformed church, when we talk about justification or righteousness. It means now you're a member of God's family. And we don't quit family. Because family becomes the place of sanctification. How many of you are girding your loins for Thursday? For Thanksgiving? Family sanctifies us, right? We, we, go, we go through the fire with family. But you don't quit family. You could pretend like your family's not your family, but your family's your family. You can walk away from your friends, but you can't walk away from family. But you now have a place, you have a home, you have people. And it transcends socioeconomic status or gender or race or all of these dividing lines of hostility that we have within society. All of those are transcended in the family of God. 
What's another benefit of the gospel? We see the healing of the world, both politically and ecologically. In Hebrew, they have this wonderful phrase, tikkun olam. It means the healing of the world and believing that's what God is up to because the salvation is not simply your personal salvation, but the salvation of the entire cosmos. And this is, again, what Paul is telling us. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. That's part of the healing of the world, is the political healing. I don't get it too much anymore because I think I've hammered this enough, but I, in the recent past, I'd have people come up to me and say, man, I can't wait until you stop talking about politics and just get back to preaching the gospel. I'm like, have you read the gospel? <laughs> like, it's pretty damn political. It's not partisan. Like, the gospel doesn't kowtow to Republican talking points or Democrat talking points or Libertarian or Green Party or... Um, oh, what was his name? Vermin Supreme? Anybody remember Vermin Supreme? He's always running in New York. Oh, he's the best. Free ponies for all Americans. I think he's got my vote. But again, we've been taught when it's only about me and my personal salvation. Well, Jesus doesn't have an opinion about politics or the economy. Like, what would he? Didn't he just all, after, at the end of the day? I remember hearing a pastor say this one time. He said, well, "At the end of the day, Jesus just wants our hearts." No, he doesn't. He wants all of it. It says right here, like, everything will submit to him, all dominion, authority, and power. He's trampling under his feet his enemies, which we believe as Christians is not, is not flesh and bone, but powers and principalities, the attitudes of humanity. It means ecological salvation, that God intends to heal the world. God is not going to scrap the created order and throw it away and just burn it all up and then we go off and live in the clouds with the cherub and just play the harp for eternity. It means like God is actually taking the material reality because matter matters to God and he's going to rescue that and redeem it and save it. So these are all benefits of the gospel that Paul is gospeling. But I love that it begins and ends with God. Like we find ourselves positioned inside of that story. When he has done this, then the son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. So the whole narrative, like your personal life, time, space itself, it all begins and ends with God. We have a divine origin we know where we come from. But we also have this destiny. We know where it is all headed. I love that line uh, from Billy Graham. He said, I, I've read the last page in the book and I know it's all going to turn out okay. I love that. It gives me confidence. You know, next week we're going to be talking about hope. And for us as Christians, hope isn't like, well, I hope it doesn't rain this afternoon because I got a wedding to go to. Like, that's not hope. It's this confidence that God will get what God wants. And that I can call that hope back into the present moment and allow it to wash over me, allow myself to be immersed in that kind of hope to carry me through the narrative, to carry me through the chaos. And Because this is the problem with the me-centered gospel that so many of us need to be purged from. We think it's our job to interpret the story of King Jesus, right? We think it's our job. We come to the Bible, you open up the Bible, you try to figure out what the Bible means, like what it says like what does it say to you okay so I was an art teacher 
uh, for several years, and it was actually really formative in me becoming a pastor. And we, I always hated this question in art. I'd say, well, what, what is art for? And they'd say, it's about expressing yourself. And I'd throw up some different paintings. I'm like, what's Picasso expressing about himself? Like, he can't see women? Like, her face, he's got a nose over here, and an eye, like, what's he saying about himself? Like, that's not what art is. Because we're so me-centered because of the enlightenment, that's what we believe. So when it comes to doing Christian things, prayer's about me, reading the Bible's just about me, that I open up the Bible and I decide what I think it means, I just find the bits that are useful for me today. That there's some verses that are here and there that are kind of like encouraging me or they, whatever, but I don't want the whole narrative because it's just about me because at the end of the day, I'm still just a consumer. And we've been trained to this so much. What must I do or what do I need out of this? So we think that it's our job to interpret the story of King Jesus. But it's King Jesus' story that interprets us, that puts us in time and space and begins to inform us of who we truly are. One of the things that just grinds my gears these days is seeing King Jesus reduced as justification for all of these other philosophies in the world. Like, it, it just makes me so mad. And it's not a left-right thing. I see it on both sides. In fact, I see now a lot of liberal Christians that were taught to read the Bible by conservative Christians and are just committing the same crimes. They're just justifying liberal talking points instead of conservative talking points. I feel like Mercutio and Boz Lorman's Romeo and Juliet. He wrote it, right? A plague on both your houses. The man standing at the center thing being like, you're all crazy. You're all missing it. I see these cartoons on Instagram or like people making these claims of Jesus. And I'm like, have you read him? Like, have you actually met him? He's far more beautiful and complicated and difficult than you think that he is. And you're taking these little tropes, these rumors of what Jesus is like in order to prop up your political positions. And I think this is why time and again, the gospel writers use this language that we are found in Christ. To be saved is to be found in him. And when we are found in him, we begin to live out his story. Not because it's useful to us. Not because it makes sense of things. But because it's true. And the more that we live out the life the death, the resurrection, and the appearance of Christ, the more that we claim its truth. Because our faith is not simply an explanation. It's a confession. It is a confessional faith. That's what we're doing as Christians. We are confessing that Jesus is Lord in thought, word, and deed. When I often get asked about what is true and what is not true and how do we know what truth is and I love that whole conversation I, I'm really fascinated by, by a lot of that but people will ask me well do you believe you know, Jesus actually raised from the dead because you guys all know the narrative because that's the kind of thing that doesn't happen right like people don't just raise from the dead they didn't believe that in Jesus' time either but 2,000 years on like we're enlightened we're, so, we're in such a better place than they were you know two centuries ago um or two millennia ago, rather, 
Like, that's just not the kind of thing that happens. And so surely, it must have just been symbolic. And again, I don't even, we don't have time to get into that, but what we think we mean by symbolism is completely different than what the ancients meant because we've reduced symbolism and metaphor to being like these little, weird little sites. But anyway, so I get asked this kind of thing. Do you believe, do you actually believe in the resurrection? Like, are you foolish enough to believe? Because now we've got science to explain, like, that's not the kind of thing that happens. And I say, I do. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I believe it's a historical event. I think it actually happened. I cannot prove it to you, because guess what? That's not how my faith works. And that sounds real ignorant. But I don't really care anymore. You know what I mean? I believe it happened, but I believe it happened because I believe it happens. Because when I sit with you and I hear your stories and I hear what you're going through, I see the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ because you are his body. And that's not a reductive symbol. I think that's actually what's happening. Like that's truer than true. So I believe in the resurrection as a historical fact, but I also believe in the resurrection because I testify to the truth of the resurrection every day of my life. And when we are found in Christ, we begin to see the world around us differently. When we begin to look for signs of resurrection. We just look for, because we are in Christ, we begin to look for Christ. And I saw Christ in a story in the news this week, and it gave me goosebumps when I read it, and I had to come back to it like every two hours to make sure that I read it correctly. Many of you will know uh, the story of Julius Jones uh, this week. He's been on death row in Oklahoma City for 22 years, supposedly for shooting a businessman in Oklahoma City. Um, if you've looked at any of the, you know, the, the, his, the case against him, there's a lot of holes in the narrative that's put him away for so long. And he was meant to be executed um, on Thursday. And there was, a, there was a kind of massive outcry online. Uh, many people responded, which was rather amazing to see. And then, as so often happens, in the 11th hour, finally the governor decided uh, not uh, to, to, to give him the death penalty. And so he's got life without parole. So it's a victory in the sense that he's not dead. Um, you know what really sucks? If you go online um, and you look up what states have the death penalty, the cynical side of you will recognize it's all the states that you assumed it was, which are also the most Christian states. Now, I don't know the governor of Oklahoma. Surprise, surprise. And I'm sure he's a delightful man, but when I saw that he needed time to pray about it, I said, I don't know if you need to pray about this one, man. <laughs> this seems like this is a slam dunk. Like, I think the death penalty is grossly, grossly anti-Christ. Grossly anti-Christ. To put a man to death for supposedly putting another man to death. Even if he did it, it doesn't matter. But we've been so, in, like, inoculated to the actual good news of King Jesus because of our surrounding society that we would give a pass to these sorts of things. But the thing that caught me in this story was this quote from Pastor Marvin Morgan, who kind of went to be there to, to make appeals uh, to the governor of Oklahoma. And he said, if another black man is going to be killed under the guise of capital punishment, it could be any black man. So I would like the governor to allow me 
to lie on that table and to die in the place of Julius Jones. Do you see Christ? Do you see the one story above all other stories? Because there only is one story, life, death, and resurrection. And when we begin to recognize that we are in Christ, we read the world like this. We read the news and we say, is Christ in Oklahoma City right now? Is Christ in New Brunswick right now? Is Christ in Kenosha this week? If we can't see Christ, we have to keep looking. Because he is king, Lord, over all, through all, and in all. So I want to invite you to stand. And we're going to confess our faith with the words of the Nicene Creed. Some of you will be familiar with this. Some of you, this might be brand new, but this is an ancient creed in the 300s um, that was written by bishops to say these are kind of the fundamental beliefs of Christians. And by no means is it an exhaustive list of like this is everything a Christian should believe. But it was the things that they felt like were particularly important as we're telling the story to allow it to wash over us. And a couple of things I want you to recognize. Number one, I love that it starts with we believe because we're doing this as the family. And we begin with talking about what we believe about God, what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about the Holy Spirit, and then what we believe about the church. Um, little disclaimer at the end, it says one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Little C Catholic, just means universal. Don't worry, I'm not gonna convert you. We're fine. Little C Catholic just means Catholic. And then apostolic means to be sent out. And so when we recite the Nicene Creed, we're kind of recentering the story of Jesus as the story that kind of gives context to all of the other stories. And we take it by faith because you're going to say things and you're going to go, I don't know about that one. And that's okay. That's all right. Because you're still taking that act of faith to bring that back to the center of our practice. So together, let us recite the words of the Nicene Creed, a confession of what we believe, and let us worship. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate of the Virgin Mary. Is it up there? No? We okay? Do you want me? I'll just tell it to you and you could just go, yeah, I agree with that. We got it? All right, let's start, start from the top there. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. 
We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.